We got another fun Q&A edition where I'll talk about inherited IRA distributions, deducting long-term care expenses, planning for unknowns in retirement, Medicare premium surcharges, and much more in this, the 44th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now, here's your host, Andy Panko. Hello, everyone. That's me trying to trying to sound British. Sorry about that. Welcome. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. We have another delicious Q&A edition episode today of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. We have uh, four written, sent-in questions and one audio question always loves me an audio question so we got some good ones today let us get into it first we have a question from a bit confused this was an email question signed uh by a bit confused uh cool i like it so a bit confused asks i transferred an inherited ira this year i did not take my required minimum distribution until after it was in the new brokerage how do i prove that it was transferred and that the distribution from the new account was for the required minimum distribution. Do I need a special form for the IRS? Does the former account send me an IRS 1099 showing it was transferred, question mark? Signed, again, a bit confused. I love it, a bit confused. So the the scenario here is a bit confused has, or had, I should say, an existing inherited IRA, inherited from who? It, It doesn't particularly matter. Let's assume it was inherited a while ago and is subject to annual required minimum distributions. Just to sort of recap for those who don't know, if you inherited an IRA from a non-spouse prior to 2020, you uh, generally have to take annual required minimum distributions from that uh, inherited IRA for the rest of your life or until you deplete the that inherited account, whichever comes first. Um, if you inherit an IRA from a non-spouse in 2020 or later, slightly different rules. I uh, won't won't uh, get into it now. I've touched on it in other episodes and videos, but so I'll assume for purpose of a bit confused question that this is a pre twenty twenty inherited IRA. Hence, why there are existing uh, annual required minimum distributions. So the the account the inherited account was already opened at another broker, uh, and it was transferred this year. The uh, this year's annual required minimum distribution was not taken until it was in the new account, you know, uh, the, the transferred over uh, account at the new brokerage. So the question is, how, how does the IRS know I took the distribution? What if they are going to see that, okay, while the account was at the old broker, no distribution was taken for this year? Is that going to be a problem? Ultimately, no. So what happens is regardless uh, where the account is now, where it was as of December 31st of last year, that custodian, that broker needs to report the December 31st value of that account to the IRS uh, and, and to you for that matter. And that is via form 5498. You will get that and the IRS will get a copy as well. So that will say on it, the year in balance was again, whatever it was. And the IRS get, gets that same information. So the IRS will know how much the account was worth at the end of the year at the old broker. It was at the old custodian. And they know based on your age and when you you know got the account, what the this year's required distribution is based on that end of year value, so they don't particularly care um, which account it comes from. Well, which which broker it's at when you take it, so long as uh, 
that that uh, IRA, whether it's at the old broker or the new broker, has at least as much distribution as this year's annual required minimum distribution, the IRS is cool with that. And so how are they going to know? Well, there will be, anytime you take a distribution from any IRA, it generates a 1099-R at tax return time. That, that comes from the custodian. And just like with the form 5498 that shows the year-end balance of, of that, that account, uh, 1099-R similarly goes to you and a copy goes to the IRS. So you use your 1099-R for the information to show you know, what your distribution was for the year and you report that on your tax return. The IRS gets a copy so they know how much you actually distributed. So they, they can match between the 5498 showing how much the account was worth at the end of last year. They know at a minimum how much you're required to take out this year. They can tick and tie and cross-reference that with the 1099-R um, showing how much how much came out of it. It doesn't ultimately matter that um, the 1099-R shows a distribution from the new broker as opposed to the end of year account balances at the old broker. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. Um, uh, you know, just the same. It's co- I forget the exact number, but on the 1099-R, there will be a coding that will say, uh, man, it might be number two or something in box seven. It basically denotes that this is um, a distribution due to death you know, or, or inherit, you know, in essence, an inherited account. So ultimately, you, you'll be fine is what I'm saying. Um, it doesn't matter that you switch custodians prior to taking the distribution, but a uh, great question. Thanks for that. A bit confused. Next, Frank. Frank, uh, Frank asks, I have never had medical expenses high enough to qualify for a tax deduction, in parentheses, thank goodness. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I heard about the following in regards to long-term care. For those who are self-insuring long-term care, IRA funds may be used to fund long-term care expenses, and if significant enough, the withdrawal can be tax-free. This will certainly make one's IRA funds go further if this event happens. Please confirm. Long-term care is not treated as a medical expense for health insurance companies. Also, there are various forms of long-term care, such as full-time care, part-time care, at-home, etc. Do all forms of long-term care qualify for the tax deduction? Uh, there's another comment. We'll, we'll hold that for the moment. So there's a few, a few moving moving parts or questions here from from Frank. Um, let's see. How do I start this one? So he's saying, uh, "I've never heard medical expenses. I've never had medical expenses high enough to qualify for a tax deduction." Thank goodness. So what does he mean by that? So any quote unquote qualified medical expenses you have that you pay out of pocket that you don't otherwise get some sort of tax deduction for. So for example, if you pay um, health insurance premiums through your employer and those premiums are pre-tax, meaning they you know come out of your paycheck before you pay tax on what's left, well, you, you can't then again claim the amount of those premium payments as a qualified medical expense for potential tax deductibility in your tax return because the money wasn't taxed in the first place. You already got a tax benefit from it because it shaved down the amount of your taxable wages uh, by nature of you making that contribution through your your paycheck. So outside of that, you know, let's say you go to a doctor, you have a twenty dollars copay, you pay fifty bucks for a prescription out of pocket. Um, I don't know. You have surgery where your share of it is you know five thousand bucks or something. You have to pay out of pocket. All these out of pocket expenses that aren't again reimbursed or covered by some sort of already tax favored thing like a flexible spending account 
um, or a health savings account, HSA, because those are already tax favored. If you're just paying straight up out of pocket, you can add all these expenses. You can also include medical mileage. So mileage you, you drive to and from doctor's appointments, uh, you know, dentist visits, uh, eye doctors, et cetera. I forget the mileage rate for this year, but every mileage, every mile you drive directly attributable to medical services or qualified medical uh, expenses, you can deduct a certain amount of, of uh, cents per mile. So if you add up all these out-of-pocket expenses, including like medical mileage expenses, the uh, you, you take that amount. If that amount is larger than 7.5% of your adjusted gross income on your tax return, you could potentially deduct the expenses in excess of 7.5%. So let's put some quick math to this. You have an adjusted gross income of $100,000. 7.5% of that is $7,500. Let's assume you have total unreimbursed uh, uh, out-of-pocket medical expenses and medical mileage of 5,000 bucks. You're not gonna be able to deduct any of it because that 5,000 is less than 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. But what if you have $10,000 of unreimbursed out-of-pocket medical expenses? That now is $2,500 larger than 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. So you now have $2,500 of medical expenses that are potentially deductible. And I say potentially because, uh, not to get too carried away here, but they're only deductible if those, in combination with your other itemized deductions, collectively exceed the value of your standard deduction. So uh, not to get too technical, but standard deduction this year in 2022 is, I'm looking, I'm looking where is it? It's like almost 13,000 bucks. It's $12,950 for single people. For married, it is 25,900, slightly higher if you're 65 or older or blind or disabled. So if the sum of your itemized deductions exceeds your respective standard deduction, then you can deduct all those itemized deductions uh, from your tax return. Otherwise, if not, your standard deduction is larger, you're just going to deduct those. So what else can you possibly deduct in addition to qualified medical expenses in excess of 7.5% of your adjusted gross income? You can also deduct state and local taxes, like state income tax, property tax on your house, but only up to $10,000 in total for the year. You can also deduct... uh, Charitable donations to qualifying charities, whether it's cash or, or stuff, you can deduct the fair value of stuff. Um, you can also deduct mortgage interest. If you have a mortgage in your primary residence, interest on that is, is generally deductible. So add up all those things. If they collectively exceed your standard deduction, then you get some tax benefit for it because you can deduct those from your tax return. So anyway, so so this is what Frank is saying. He, he thankfully has never had out-of-pocket medical expenses large enough that that he hit this bogey where he could actually deduct them. But he's saying, hypothetically, you know, he knows that you can. Specifically, in, in reference to long-term care, if you have a long-term care event, that could be real pricey for, for multiple years. So that then you may have really large out-of-pocket medical expenses, which can then be deductible, right? So now this is where Frank's going when he's saying, for those who are self-insuring long-term care, by self-insuring, he's saying they didn't purchase commercial insurance for long-term care. They're just paying out of pocket, which is technically self-funding, not self-insuring, not not to uh, be too particular about it. But so he's saying for those who do pay out of pocket, if and when they have long-term care, he heard that IRA funds could be used to fund those expenses. So what does this mean? So yes, uh, you are right. Let me explain why. So now 
This is one of the reasons why you, you know, for people who are real eager to want to do Roth conversions or get rid of as much of their tax deferred IRA money as possible while they can, instead of leaving it to, 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 you know, to realize and pay tax in the future. One reason you may want to leave some behind is because you can use it to pay for long-term care expenses. Here's how. So quick example, let's assume you have $100,000 of qualifying medical expenses associated with a long-term care event. You know, you uh, struggle to feed and bathe yourself and you you need round-the-clock medical care, let's say. Um, and it costs $100,000. Just picking a round number here, it's probably, you know, could be more, but let's let's use $100,000. So that's a lot of medical expense. Now, you can you can withdraw $100,000 out of your IRA. Now, normally, you're going to be like, oh, that's not good. That's $100,000 of extra taxable income by making that distribution. Well, yes, but that $100,000 of added gross income you have from this IRA distribution can be could be mostly wiped away by the medical expense deduction of your long-term care expenses. So let, let's wrap some numbers on this. You have a $100,000 gross IRA distribution. So, and let's assume that's it. So your gross income is 100 grand. 7.5%, because remember, that's the hurdle you have to hit to deduct medical expenses. 7.5% of that is $7,500. Let's just assume to keep the, the example painfully simple. You use all $100,000 of that distribution to pay $100,000 of qualifying medical expenses associated with long-term care. So now you can deduct everything in excess of $7,500. So that's $92,500 of deductible medical expenses you have. So do the math. If your gross income is hundred grand, you're able to deduct $92,500 against it as itemized deductible medical expenses. You now only have $7,500 of taxable income for the year. Right? You feel me? So $100,000 IRA distribution from a tax perspective is, is almost completely wiped away all the way down to $7,500, which the tax bill on that is, is going to be, uh, you know, a, a few peanuts, let's say. So so that that's what Frank's saying. And yes, that, that is true, Frank. Now, here's the rub. While your taxable income could be wiped really low because of the large medical expense deductions, your gross income is still $100,000 in this case. Why does that matter? Because your adjusted gross income can feed into other things that could directly or indirectly impact you now or in the future. For example, Medicare premiums. We've discussed this a few times in, in this podcast and in my videos and Facebook group. Um, for a single person, if your income in 2020, for example, is over $91,000, you're going to have to pay additional premium on your Medicare uh, two years later, so in, in 2022 in this case. Um, so in the example, in this year, this person takes out 100 grand from an IRA, has $100,000 of gross income, most likely two years later, that person's Medicare premiums are going to go up because, because the AGI was over you know, $100,000. So, so that's the one drawback of this plan, that there is that indirect extra cost, uh, possibly, you know, depending what uh, how much exactly you're pulling out and where that lands you in these Medicare surcharge range, for example. So there's that. But yes, from a, from a pure just uh, tax return perspective, the qualifying medical expenses from long-term care could, could wipe away a large portion of it. So that's, that's correct. Um, next, you go on to say, Long-term care is not treated as medical expense for health insurance companies. I'm, I'm frankly not, uh, frankly, I just said, and your name's Frank. Huh. Anyway, uh, that was not planned. So I'm not entirely sure where, where you're going with that, Frank. But then you also say also there are various forms of long-term care, full-time care, part-time at home, et cetera. Do all forms of long-term care qualify for 
uh, for a tax deduction? Um, long answer, but but ultimately no. So I have up in front of me IRS Publication 502, which which details which medical expenses are or aren't potentially deductible. Regarding, there's a section about nursing home, for example. So this is this is a good uh, uh, proxy for for long term care, if you will. So. Maybe. The answer is maybe. Maybe all expenses associated with that nursing home are deductible as medical expenses. Maybe some aren't. Uh, and it goes on to say, you can include in medical expenses the cost of medical care in a nursing home, home for the aged or similar institution for yourself, your spouse, or your dependents. This includes the cost of meals and lodging in the home if a principal reason for being there is to get medical care. Do not include the cost of meals and lodging if the reason for being in the home is personal. You can, however, include in medical expenses the part of the cost that is for medical or nursing care. So uh, what they're saying is it really all depends, Frank. Um, if, if you're in this home 100% for medical necessity and part of you being there, uh, you know, part of your fee for, for, for living there includes meals and you need assistance in feeding, bathing, dressing, um, th- then almost certainly, uh, you know, the entirety of your expense in that nursing home will be a qualified medical expense. Now, I think, I don't know if all homes do this or only certain, but but I think often they will split out, you know, if you pay rent or whatever you want to call it, they will split out how much of that is qualified medical expense versus how much is personal expenses, in which case personal expenses are not deductible. So um, long way of saying it depends. Now, if you have care in home, if you just have like a relative come over and help you feed, bathe, get dressed, get in and out of bed, uh, no, that does not qualify. Even though it's it's you know necessity, uh, necessary necessary assistance for you to live, it, it's not qualified medical expenses. Now, if you have a hired uh, skilled nurse come and do that, and he or she is providing, um, you know, some medical treatments, you know, administering medications or. I don't know, an IV or something that then, you know, the medical portion of it is, but, but I, I'm not certain, but I don't think them simply coming to help you, uh, live life is, is going to be uh, qualified medical expenses. So it, it really depends. You have to ask those questions prior to going to a home or hiring an in-care service. They should know the answers much better because they know exactly, um, they've crossed this bridge many times before, Frank. All right. Um, what was, so you had another, this is more of a comment here, but Let's just say on the same topic, you go on to say regarding long-term care insurance, some suggestions, many don't buy due to the expense, but often we are in an all or nothing mindset. Consider a plan that offers less than full coverage. For example, 50% of expected expenses, no inflation adjustment, etc. Some coverage may be better than nothing. Also, if one spouse is expected to live much longer than the other, such as a male who's 10 years older than the wife or in ill health, uh, consider one policy. The, the one policy will protect household funds so that the survivor Surviving spouse uh, can self-insure, self-fund. Yeah, great point. One of people's big reservations about buying traditional long-term care insurance is it's no secret that that prices have have gone up a lot, uh, you know, over the years for for a variety of reasons. And it is what it is. You kind of can't fight it now. Like you said, it doesn't need to be all or none. If you're trying to fully insure, you know, up to three hundred thousand dollars a year of of long-term care expenses for four or five years yeah you know bet your bottom dollar the uh who said that annie said annie or dr daddy warbucks and whatever um rest assured that that policy is going to be really expensive especially depending on what point in life you get it and etc 
So, so maybe you don't you don't go to try to ensure the entirety of the worst case scenario. Maybe you just got a little something to take the edge off, basically. So you're not fully paying out of pocket. So maybe you're only buying the equivalent of, you know, just picking a number here, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year of possible benefit. And there's lots of ways you can tweak this. So for people who do have existing policies, what inevitably will happen is your premium is going to go up at some point. And when it does, you'll you'll be notified in advance and you will get a notice. It won't just say, hey, your premium's going up, deal with it. You know, either drop the policy or keep paying. What commonly happens is they'll give you options. They'll say, yes, you can drop the policy, obviously, or you can keep the same level of coverage you have and pay this higher rate, or you can drop your coverage a little. Either you, you decrease the amount of benefit you get, or you reduce or eliminate the inflation adjustment you may have. You know, there's various levers that can be pulled where you can tweak your coverage and therefore tweak the... Uh, um, the, the, the premium expense you have to pay going forward. So great, great, uh, observation, great recommendations, Frank. And, and thank you for the, uh, uh, thorough long-term care, long-term care question. Next, moving on. This one's fairly specific. This is from Vinit. Vinit asks, uh, how are you? Thank, thanks a lot for the wealth of information you provide. I love listening to every episode of your podcast. Thank you, Vinit. I love making every episode of my podcast. Uh, I have a question about taxes, not exactly a retirement related question, but I'd appreciate it if you can help. Short version, for company RSUs, would my capital gain or loss be calculated on the grant price or the vest price? Then he goes on to give uh, an an example. So um, what does all this mean? So RSU stands for Restricted Stock Unit. It is when you work at a company that has has stock, um, part of your compensation may be that they they will give you shares of stock, but they are restricted, meaning um, they give it to you, but you don't fully own it yet. They're, They're kind of in your name, if you will. But there's a period of time that has to pass until they're actually yours. You have the full legal ownership and, and you know uh, right of use to do with as you please. Then they're fully yours. So that's why they're called restricted. You, you get them, but sort of not really. You, you kind of have to wait until they're until they're fully yours. So th- there's two dates that come into play with what I just said. One is the grant date. That's the date they actually give you the shares initially. But again, they're not fully yours. They're sort of yours in name but they're not yours until what's called the vest date, which depending on your company and its particular schedule, you know, could be one years, could be three years or whatever be- between um, grant date and vest date. So um, when, you, when you get them granted to you, it, it is not a taxable event because again, you don't actually own them. They're, they're not yours. They're sort of earmarked for you, if you will, but, but, but they're not yours. So there's no tax implications. And frankly, the, the, the price that they are on the, the uh, grant date doesn't particularly matter, again, because it's not yours yet. You're, you're not taxed on it. Once the vest date happens, then it is a taxable event. Then the the share price on the date of vest definitely matters. And it matters because the, the total amount of the position, the dollar amount of the position on vest date is treated just like wages. So let's put some quick numbers. You get uh, 100 shares granted to you and let's assume the price is nine granted again that doesn't matter but that would mean a 900 dollars total position a year later they vest and you now actually own them these 10 shares are deposited into your brokerage account and let's assume the price on the vest date is ten dollars per share so uh uh, did i say 10 shares before i think i don't remember or 100 whatever let's assume i said 10 shares um, no, hundred. So you got a hundred shares granted at nine dollars. So that, I'm sorry, that would have been nine hundred dollars of initial um, grant price. But again, that doesn't matter. On vest date a year later, share price is ten. So that's now a thousand dollars. hundred shares times times ten dollars per share. 
from a tax perspective, that will be treated as if you got $1,000 of wages paid to you on the vest date. Uh, it'll be taxed as wages. It'll show up on your W-2 like wages. You'll have to pay self, um, uh, sorry, FICA tax, you know, pay, um, payroll tax, which is Social Security Medicare tax on it. So it'll be $1,000 of, of wages. The best way to think about it is basically, it's in effect, you getting a, a $1,000 cash bonus where you opt to receive that cash bonus in shares instead, okay? Now, the question is, when you eventually sell those shares, what what price do you use to determine your gain or loss? Is it the price of the shares on the grant date or on the vest date? It's the vest date. Again, grant date doesn't matter. So if you receive, again, these 100 shares at $10 a share on the vest date, you can immediately sell them as soon as you have them. Let's assume the price didn't change at all during that day. You'll have you'll have the thousand dollars income tax from from the vesting you know treated as wages if you immediately sell them and the share price is still ten dollars when you sell it there, there's no additional tax implications because there's no gain or loss you receive them at 10 per share you sell them at 10 per share if you if you wait whether it's a day two years whatever and they go to fifteen dollars a share you'll now have a five dollar gain per share which is the sale price of 15 over the vest price of 10 per share. Again, the grant price of nine per share does not matter. Uh, other quick note, if you if you hold them more than a year after vest date, that gain will be taxed as a long-term capital gain at reduced rates. If you sell them within 12 months or less from when they vest, not when they grant, but when they vest, that'll be a short-term capital gain and you have to pay ordinary income tax rates on it. Great question. Uh, only applicable to those who have restricted stock units, which isn't majority of people, but for those who do, this is very common. Um, so thanks for asking this question, Vineet. Next, we've got one more written question and then a uh, uh, audio. This one, Krishnan from somewhere in the SF Bay Area. Krishnan, I'm assuming you mean super fragilistic Bay Area, of course, right? No, just kidding. Uh, I'm guessing San Francisco. Um, Krishnan says, love the podcast. Look forward to every week. Awesome. Thank you, Krishnan. Short version of the question. Do the IRMA premiums apply if Medicare has been suspended? So IRMA is I-R-M-A-A. stands for income related, uh, monthly adjustment amount. I talked about it in episode five of this podcast and various times in, uh, as I mentioned before, YouTube videos and Facebook. So the, the skinny here is Krishnan is saying, uh, the scenario is already 65, already on Medicare, but what if I, what if I go back to work? And that employer offers me creditable coverage or qualifying coverage, medical coverage, such that that will allow me to suspend Medicare without penalty. Because normally, once you're 65, you have to sign up for Medicare or within an initial seven-month window. Uh, if you don't, there will be penalties for life if and when you do. But if you have qualifying health coverage to an employer, you, you can continue delaying the start of Medicare until you lose that coverage. So similarly, I, I didn't know this till you brought it up, Krishnan, but I didn't know you can suspend Medicare once you start. Apparently you can. So again, you're 65, you're already on Medicare. Assume two years later, 67, you know, you're bored, you want to go back to work. So you do. And they, they offer medical coverage that can qualify to take the place of Medicare. So that does appear to be, I'm not 100% certain, but that does appear to be a scenario where you can pause or suspend Medicare and not be penalized for for not having Medicare coverage because you have this qualifying uh, employer coverage. So uh, the question then is, will the Medicare surcharge premiums apply while Medicare is suspended? Um, the, the answer is ultimately no. So if you're not actually on Medicare and not paying the base Medicare premiums, there's no additional surcharge premium you have to pay in that regard. So from that, that perspective, the answer is no. 
But depending how you're looking at this question, the answer is also yes. So think about it from this angle. You're 67. You stop Medicare for the whole year because you now have employer coverage. And let's assume you go wild uh, doing large Roth conversions or otherwise have really large income from this new job. And your income is, you know, a few hundred thousand bucks in the year you're 67. Cool. Uh, is what it is. Next year, you, you stop the job. Or let's, uh, yeah, you stop the job. You, you go back on Medicare at 68. Um, all is good. You continue on Medicare when you're 69 now. The premiums you pay when you're 69 are going to look back at your income two years prior when you were 67. Uh, I won't get into why it's two year look back. Check out episode five again for more info. But um, so the income you had while you were not on Medicare, while Medicare was suspended, will ultimately come into play two years later if you are on Medicare at that time and can impact the premiums you have to pay at that time at age 69 in this case. So uh, the answer is sort of it depends, you know, it depends which angle or what exactly what framing or what perspective you're looking at this question from, uh, Krishan. Hopefully that, that cleared it up. All right. Uh, that was the, the question from Krishan. And finally, let's wrap with an audio question from none other than the man, the myth, the legend, David Fultz. Again, for those who don't know, David Fultz is the, one of the moderators in my Facebook group, Taxes and Retirement. He is a swell chap. I am super grateful for all the time and effort he puts in in helping administer and moderate the, uh, the, the Taxes and Retirement Facebook group, which I might be biased in saying this, but is hands down the best, the most insightful, the most educational, the least salesy uh, retirement planning related Facebook group there is. Um, I'm, I'm clearly biased, but I, but I genuinely feel that 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 isn't far off uh, of a statement in, in saying that. So anyway, thank you, David Fultz, for everything. Um, so here is David Fultz's question. Hi, Andy. Thank you very kindly for taking my question. In retirement planning, how do you account for the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns? Thanks again for answering my question, and kudos to your outstanding retirement planning education podcast. All right. Thank you, David Fultz. Man, you all, you always ask the hard-hitting questions here, David Fultz, the ones that don't have easy answers. Um, great question. I, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this and it's going to just sound like random ruminations and musings and maybe some some rambling. So what are the known knowns? These these are things you know with certainty. Which honestly I, after thinking about it, I don't think there are a lot of, I don't think there there's a lot of known knowns in retirement planning. Some things like having to take required minimum distributions at age 72 that's factual, right? That that's legislation. There's no changing that unless legislation itself changes, but um, what we don't know is is the actual value of your RMDs because that'll be contingent upon the value of your accounts at the time, which which we don't know. But still, you know, we know the fact that you need to start taking RMDs when you turn seventy two. Well, technically the year after, but whatever. Um, we also know Medicare. You have to start at sixty five, unless, like we just mentioned, the other other question, unless you have other qualifying coverage through through employment, you can you can uh, continue to delay or suspend it. Otherwise, you have to start Medicare at 65. So the, the known knowns are, are, I don't want to say easy to plan, but the fact that they're known knowns means we, we can account for them in financial planning software and projections or even back of the envelope math. So those, those are the relatively easy things. Uh, I think the majority of retirement planning falls into the known unknowns. Like, like we know the angles. We, we know the things that could happen. We don't know exactly when they're going to happen or or 
what the impact will be when they do happen. So the best we can do is, is try to plan, project, assume a certain uh, base case outcome of one of these things, but but realize the base case could be better or worse and, and, and you know, adapt and plan accordingly. So, so what are known unknowns? Things like social security. So that, you know, I, I thought that maybe is a known known because you can look at your statement, know exactly what it is. But the reason why I say it's a known unknown is because things like the cost of living adjustments, we don't know what that's going to be, right? Historically, inflation has been about two and a half percent over the last 30 years. This year, it's eight, nine percent, depending, uh, you know, what, what month you're looking at. Social security cost of living adjustment gets announced next month. It should be nine-ish percent, uh, depending, give or take a percent. Uh, who knows what inflation is going to be going forward? So that's kind of an unknown unknown. Um, the, the more common known unknowns are things like long-term care. We know it's a risk. We know it's a possibility. For many people, we have no idea if it's going to happen or when or, or how long it'll last or how expensive it'll be. I mean, obviously, if you have lots of medical conditions, chances are you're at higher risk. Or if you have family history, you're at higher risk for the average person or otherwise, you know, above average healthy person. This is a known unknown. You know it might happen. So what do you do? Do you, do you insure it? Do you ins- how much do you insure it for? Like uh, Frank's question before. Um, do you try to self-fund? You know, how much you think it's going to be? How much you have to earmark to set aside? Uh, so so that, that's one of the big ones. And there's really not a great way to address it other than do you want to insure it? Do you have enough assets where you think you can self-fund? If not, do you want to insure it? Uh, if so, how much is that going to cost? And then basically run some scenarios, projections, analysis. This is where some good financial planning software comes in and tries to, uh, all financial planning software is ultimately going to be wrong because it's doing nothing more than making educated guesses about the future, but it's at least a starting point. You know, you have to start somewhere. So we can do some projections and see in sort of broad strokes, the anticipated impact of of what a one-year, a two-year, a three-year long-term care event may look like, may do to your finances, uh, whether, you know, whether it happens five years, 20 years down the road. So that's one of them. Premature death. We all know we're going to die at some point. So that, that's a known to some extent, but it's also an unknown because we have no idea when. I mean, for the for those who are terminally ill, God forbid, you, you have a lot more certainty about this. But for, for the majority of us, we don't know. By default, I assume in my projections, everyone lives till 95 unless they have real serious medical conditions and you shave it down some or extreme family longevity, then you knock it up, <laughs> uh, you, you increase it some. But otherwise, I assume 95 as a, as a start point for, for everyone. In reality, most people aren't going to live that long, but, but who knows? You know, It's better to be conservative than shoot yourself in the foot and, and uh, not you know assume you die too long and end up grossly outliving your money. Um, even living expenses, right? You, you definitely have to do the homework to try to get as granular as possible with your anticipated expenses throughout retirement. Because if you don't know how much money you, you think you need every year, then you, you're flying completely blind and trying to formulate a plan for do you have enough? If not, how much is enough? So uh, you have to do the homework of, of putting together what you think your expenses are and, and try to be as accurate as possible for as far out in the future as possible. But we know it's going to be wrong. Things will change. Your life changes. You know your family situations changes. Inflation changes. Um, your your discretionary spending changes. Your hobbies change. Lots of things change in life. So even in retirement, retirement planning is still a moving target for for better or worse. We can try to minimize and project and plan and analyze as much as we want. All these things will be wrong. They, they will change for good, for bad, for indifferent. So that's a known unknown. Same thing. Um, there's not a great way to do this. You can do some back of the envelope math, but you, you really sort of need some sort of 
I mean, you can ultimately do it in a spreadsheet if you want, but there's more powerful, robust tools like Monte Carlo simulators and other ways to look at scenarios and what ifs uh, that are that are done really well in commercial financial planning software. And then the big one, the unknown unknowns. Um, man, you, you got me there. I mean, sort of by definition, it's like we don't even know what we don't know. So how are we supposed to plan for it? So I tried to think, like, what are some possible unknown unknowns? One I came up with was like completely out of the blue change to tax legislation. So like we know how the tax system works now. We know there's brackets and rates and there's other additional taxes and credits. We can sort of guess and make estimates how how high we think or how low, you know, those credits are going to go up or down or the brackets will go up or go down or the rates will go up or go down. But what if there's a completely new provision in the tax code that comes out of nowhere? For example, um, episode 41, just recently, I, I talked about the net investment income tax. That's something that completely did not exist prior to 2013. No one would have ever fathomed it prior to that. Yet here we are, nine years later, it, it's deeply embedded in the tax code and, and it's a fact of life. Now, it doesn't apply to everyone and it's not exceptionally onerous or, or expensive in, in, for many for many people. So it's, it's not really going to make or break your retirement plan. So that's not the perfect example. But the point is like, that's something that no one ever would have visualized. That that was an unknown unknown 10 years ago. Now here we are. It's a, it's a very well known. So that's something you can't really plan for. You know, when it happens, you just have to adjust and adapt. Like again, it's always a moving target. Um, really high inflation, right? We know there's inflation every year. We know some years there might be deflation, but generally there's inflation. Historically, it's been about two and a half percent over the last 30 years. Last couple of years, we know obviously different. Eight or nine percent this year, five or six percent last year, I think. Next year, who knows? I I don't foresee. Now I'm looking at my crystal ball here, which which doesn't necessarily work. But I don't foresee inflation staying persistently this high for really long. Maybe another year, you know, maybe two years at worst. I'm, I'm just just guessing. But you know, at some point, I think it's going to trickle down back to. Uh, historical average ish of you know let's call it three ish percent you know two to three percent somewhere um but what if it doesn't worst case it doesn't what if we are in an eight nine ten percent annual inflation regime for years god forbid decades there there is no way to plan around that you know to, to be frank if if that happens that's going to bust a lot of people's plans and there's really no way around it now for what it's worth, I think if we do have that nasty of inflation for that long of a period, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, th- there's something much, much worse going on in the world where not to say money doesn't matter, but um, I, I don't know. I, I just I can't envision a scenario where that happens. But point is, that's an unknown unknown inflation. That's just so off the charts that no one's even fathoming it within the realm of possible. That's an unknown unknown. And then just huge geopolitical events. Um, things that sort of keep me up at night is, is things that you can't prepare for. And when they happen, there's a really no good way to address it. Nuclear war, right? Whether it's Putin or, or uh, uh, North Korea pushing the launch button and dropping a nuke somewhere, that's not good. I, I, I can only begin to imagine the, the calamity that's going to unleash across the world in the financial markets. Um, how do you possibly plan for that? I, I, I don't know, right? You can't always 
attempt to be so conservative that you're addressing every worst case possible outcome. If you are, your plan is going to be so conservative that it, it's probably not going to work because you're going to be in all cash all the time, for example, right? Or, or in all gold all the time, which, um, you know, majority of cases isn't going to work. But in an absolute end of the world scenario, that may be the brilliant outcome, but who knows? So I'll leave it there. That's my thoughts. Like I said, I thought this was going to get into me rambling. But great question, Dave Faults. Thank you for that. Really difficult one, but made me think. So I, I appreciate it. All right. I will stop there. Thank you, as always, for the questions. For those who, who would like a question answered, you can email them to me at andypanko at gmail.com or brownie points if you send me an audio file like Mr. Faults did. Uh, I will I will gladly play that on the episode. It uh, tickles me when, when there's an audio file to play. Hopefully it, it uh, you like it as well. Um, as always, if, if you like this podcast and, and the stuff I sit here and, and muse about, you'll like my other content sources. My Facebook group is Taxes and Retirement. My YouTube channel is Retirement Planning Demystified, though honestly, I've been really lazy with doing new videos there. Haven't done one in a few months, um, other than a recent tax webinar I just posted up. And uh, my, my newsletter is Retirement Planning Insights. You can find links to all three in the notes of this episode. And I'd be remiss if I did not grovel and beg for um, a thumbs up, a like, a positive review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to this to this uh, retirement planning education podcast. All right, Andy out. Hope you enjoyed that. I always enjoy these Q&As and uh, keep the questions coming. Thank you as always, and I'll see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.